this morning we're going to get into some pretty convicting stuff. Lusting, boasting, and denying. So if you haven't put on your asbestos yet and uh, shielded yourself, um, put it on because you're going to need it. Uh, This morning we turn to the passion narrative and it's just a A few more hours left in the life of Jesus before he dies as that perfect sacrifice for sinners. And as we look at the text, there's just so much drama here. It's just the the text is full of, you know, drama and passion and just emotion as we see Jesus going to accomplish what he was born to accomplish. And it's kind of bittersweet because we don't like it, what they're doing to him. We don't like to see him hurt. We don't want to see him suffer and be tortured and crucified and denied and despised and be that man of sorrows acquainted with grief. There's a part of us that just wants to rescue him and say, no, no, no. But there's another part of us that thinks, go, Jesus, man, go to the cross. We need it. Uh, we need forgiveness. We need salvation and only you can do it. And so there's part there's it's it's kind of an odd thing when you go through it. You're kind of happy and sad as you see Jesus marching towards his own death. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus is entering in really to his, what he calls his hour of darkness in Luke twenty-two fifty-three. That time when he submits himself into the hands of evil men, into the hands of Satan, into the hands of demons, so that they can do with Jesus what they will. So that Jesus then can be that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these are really the remaining moments of his humiliation. You know, so often when people say we need to be like Jesus and, you know, we need to do this. And a lot of times they only point to Jesus in his humiliation. You have to remember that Jesus is no longer in his humiliation, will never be in his humiliation again. He is now the exalted Lord. And he he sits in heaven. He will come back as king of kings and lord of lords. And no longer will he submit to evil men. He will make them submit to him. And thus it will be forevermore. But for now, he is working at obtaining eternal redemption for those who place their faith in him. Now, if you've looked at the screen, you're thinking, man, that is a lot of verses. Can you preach on that many verses? Um I can, I can. Uh, As a matter of fact, I've got to make sure I get Jesus resurrected by resurrected resurrection Sunday. So um, the secretaries all agreed that I should not have Jesus be resurrected a week or two later. So we're working towards that. Now, whenever you pick a bigger text, then there's one of two things you do. You either like touching everything real quickly and you move on and don't really go into any depth or application. Or you can just pick and choose some good things and and leave a lot of other good things behind. And that's what we're going to do. Sorry. Um, I would just uh, it would be so great to preach three whole sermons. Um, on these verses, but we're just going to do one and you're going to really be glad. You're going to be glad because these three things that we are to avoid are really convicting. And you're going to think as we're ending one point, thank God we're moving on. And then you're going to think, oh, no, we're at the next point. You're going to be like Job said in Job 20, verse 24. He may flee from the iron weapon, but the bronze bow will pierce him. Or like Jeremiah in Jeremiah forty-eight forty-four, the one who flees from terror will fall into the pit, and the one who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. Or as Amos says in Amos five nineteen, is when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or he goes home and leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. So we are going to flee from the lion of lusting only to be caught by the bear of boasting, only to be bit by the snake of denying. And uh, so hang on, it's, it's going to be a, a convicting morning. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He's told them he is going to suffer, that uh, he's going to inaugurate the new covenant in his blood. He's instituted uh, the communion or the Lord's Supper and... Uh, You know, it's a very solemn time, but the disciples seem to be rather clueless about it. 
They are, they're just, you know, like what, you know, uh, we see them in the text. We're going to see them in our text today talking about things that just seem to have nothing to do with anything. Um, and, and when somebody asked me, you know, why don't they, why aren't they like tracking here? I mean, why Jesus just told them these things? How come they're just like, oh, well, you know, big deal. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're going to die. You're going to, you know, inaugurate the new covenant in your blood. You're going to, you're going to die. Okay. They, they don't seem to be bothered by this. Why is that? Well, we learned back in Luke 18 verses 31 and following where we read this. Then he took the 12 aside and he said to them, behold, We're going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now that is clear. Is that clear? That's clear. He pulls him aside and says, these are all the things that are going to happen to me. But then we read in verse 34, but the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Why? Well, what we learned is, is that they had supernatural divine blindness foisted upon them. You say, well, why, why would God do that? Because they would have been fighting against God's will for Jesus. They would have tried to rescue Jesus and fight against Jesus and get an army of disciples to protect Jesus. And, and Jesus is trying to die for them and they would be fighting against their own salvation. And so what God did is he blinded them so that they didn't understand what was going on. And that's why in the upper room, Jesus is saying all these solemn things. And then after he says all these solemn things, they begin discussing something that is not all that wholesome. And we shall see uh, as we move through the text this morning, I'm not going to read it up front because it's just going to take too much time. We'll read it as we go, that the disciples are are not being very godly at this most critical moment in Jesus's greatest hour of need. They are going to scatter from him and deny him and really um, allow him to go through this all by himself so that uh, no one will be able to say, well, I helped Jesus out because no one did. He will die alone and deserted. Now, uh, if you're wondering about, well, what about the verses in between the ones? I can see we're skipping around and, and I can see that we're going to kind of go from 34 to 54. And what's that about? And uh, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to deal with one part of the text and then we're going to go to the fulfillment of it. And then we'll go to those other verses in between later. So we're not skipping them. We're just, I just wanted to bring them all together so we can kind of get not only the shaft of the spear, but the point of the spear at the same time. All right, here it is. The first convicting point is avoid lusting for power and position look at verse 24 jesus has just said you know i am going to die to institute the new covenant and there arose a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest you're kidding me it's like what is that I mean, he's just said, I, I'm going to die. I, I'm, I'm going to inaugurate the new covenant in my blood. Uh, and now they're saying, well, you know, I think I'm going to be better, greater than you. They're lusting for power. They're lusting for position. And this is not the first time either. I mean, earlier on in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48, we read an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. And that's not all. In another completely different instance, in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 40, we read of a similar um, happening. James and John actually... If you compare it with the Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, we realize that James and John, the sons of thunder, said, Mom, Mom, 
could you go to Jesus because he's pretty kind and nice to women. And um, could you ask Jesus if we could sit at his right hand and left in his kingdom? This is what he said. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus. Actually, they had their mom do it. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want from me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit on your, on your right and one on your left in your glory. Oh, is that all? And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? They said, oh, we are able. And Jesus said to them, though the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And I'm telling you, when we get to heaven, whoever's taking those two spots up are probably going to be a lot different than you think. Probably some mom like, you know, Susanna Wesley or something. So the disciples, they understand that Jesus is the Messiah. They understand that that he is the king. They see the movement. They see the triumphal entry. They see things amping up here. There's all these people now who seem to be in favor of him. And they think he's going to do it. He just talked about the new covenant. The kingdom's coming. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, in the kingdom, you know, I'm probably going to be above you. No, no, no. Hey, listen, I'm one of the chosen three. Yeah, you may be one of the chosen three, but it's humility. That's great. He just told us. And I want you to know, I have been content to be one of the other outskirt apostles. And I've let you do that because I've humbly just tried not to be. I can see you pushing for power. And so these are the kind of things that's going on among the twelve. These are like the guys who are going to start the church. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. Stop there. Jesus says, oh, yes, there's Gentile rulers and they, they're lording it over people. But you know what they call themselves? Benefactors. Like benefactors, they're evil tyrants is what they are. They're not benefactors. It was common then to call yourself something antithetical to what you are. A lot of times on the coins, you know, they have some, you know, the great benefactor on there or some evil, wicked tyrant, kind of like some of the, the popes, you know, who call themselves Pope Pius or Pope Innocent. And believe me, if you have to give yourself a title like that, you're the opposite I mean, it's one thing if somebody else gives you that title. But when you say, I think I'll be called Pope Innocent, you know you're not that way. And Jesus says at the beginning of verse 26, but it is not this way with you. You have a position of authority in my kingdom, in my economy. You're not going to be ordering people around. You're not going to give yourself this great title and then do the exact opposite. Believe me. Look at the middle of verse 26. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. And this is just like a huge radical statement because in that culture, if you were older, you were just automatically respected. You were automatically deferred to because you were older. You had more life experience. And because you had more life experience, the younger people catered to and served the older people. It was just a rite of passage. I have more life experience than you. I have more wisdom than you. You do what I say. You serve me. I'm older. Now Jesus says, and yet in my economy, what I want you to do is always pretend to be the youngest person and always be the one serving other people, even if you're older. And if you are a leader, you need to become like a servant, one who serves other people. In other words, I want you to be servant leaders, servant leaders. And this is antithetical to the tyrannical rulers of the time, to dictators and kings and presidents and CEOs of companies who always have lots of people serving them. Not so, Jesus says with you. J.C. Ryle says, quote, 
ambition, self-esteem, self-deceit lie deep at the bottom of people's hearts and often in the hearts of those who least suspect it. Countless people imagine themselves to be humble but cannot bear to see it equal, honored, or favored more than themselves. Few heartily rejoice in a neighbor being promoted over their own heads. The amount of envy and jealousy in the world is a glaring proof of the prevalence of pride. People would not be envious of a brother's advancement if they did not secretly think that they themselves deserve to be promoted more and quote. That is so true. You know it's true. One time I was at a conference and I was one of the speakers with a whole bunch of learned doctors. And, and so, we, you know, we were supposed to get there early and get our name tags and stuff. And so I'm there and I go up to the table and the person's serving. And I look and there's like Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, Jack Hughes. <laughs> and... And you know what? I, you know, there's not very many people who call me doctor. I mean, you know, Don Chernock does it to pick on me and lose stone. But, um, you know, it's not something I promote. I don't stick it on my stuff. I'm not telling anybody about it. And I, I happen to be so good at it. They didn't put doctor in front of my name. But what happened is, is, is when I saw that against all the other speakers, I just kind of, it just came out of me. Like, hey, uh, you know. You forgot to put doctor in front of my name. <laughs> and as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I thought, not good. That is the black sin of lust for ambition right there. I, I'm fine blending in, but when I get among peers and you got your dog, well, I got mine too. It just, it just came out. I mean, I wasn't planned. All of a sudden, and then I was thinking, why did that happen? Why did that happen? Why did that just like pop out of my mouth? And oh, I shouldn't have said that. And I was just like, yeah. And you've probably had the same thing happen to you. I realized at that moment, what Ryle said, that deep within the bottom of my heart, there was that ambition there. That lust for for power and prominence. And even though I tried to suppress it, in just a moment when I had my guard down, all of a sudden, out it came. Jesus gives another illustration. Look at verse 27. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? This is how the world measures greatness. Listen, I'm at the restaurant. You serve me. Why don't you cut my meat for me? You know, why don't you serve me? Why don't you date? get this here? I need some more ketchup. You know, serve me. That's what you want. Because well, you're paying and you're great and the other person's less than and they need to serve you. But Jesus then drops the corrective line upon them again. Look towards the end of verse 27. But I am among you as one who serves. Now, we don't know this from uh, Luke's account, but we know it from John's account that at this moment, what Jesus then did is, is he got up and everybody thought, what's he doing? And uh, he girded himself up and got a towel and a bowl of water and he bent down and he started washing the dirty feet of the disciples. Think about that. The Lord God Almighty incarnate, creator of heaven and earth. The one who has been worshipped by myriads and myriads and ten thousands times ten thousands of angels in the glory which he had before coming to earth. And now he is washing the dirty feet of the disciples. And believe me, no one did that unless you were just a slave. I mean, you might wash your own feet, but you would never, ever wash somebody else's feet because that would be like being a slave. And yet that is what Jesus did for an example for us to follow. Ryle again notes, quote, the hero in Christ's army is not the man who has rank and title and dignity and chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. 
It is the man who looks not on his own things, but on the things of others. It is the man who is kind to all, tender to all, thoughtful for all, with a hand to help all and a heart to feel for all. It is the man who spends and is spent to make the vice and misery of the world less, to bind up the brokenhearted, to befriend the friendless, to cheer the sorrowful, to enlighten the ignorant and to raise the poor. This is the truly great man in the eyes of God. The world may ridicule his labors and deny his sincerity of his motives. But while the world is sneering, God is pleased. This is the man who is walking most closely in the steps of Christ. End quote. That is the leader in Jesus's economy. Look at verses 28 through 30 now. Jesus gives them some encouragement. What's interesting is is he says this right after they're arguing about who is the greatest. I mean, granted, he does give them correction, gives them a couple illustrations to kind of say, no, 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 don't go there. But he says this, you are those, verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's amazing how Jesus says this right after they blew it. And it just shows us his grace, even though, I mean, they're, they're flaky. They're, they're like us. And they're, Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to die for those things. And so he encourages them in five different ways. He says, one, you have stood by me overlooking their selfish bantering, overlooking the times they blew it, overlooking what he knows is going to happen. They're all going to desert him. He says, well, let me just say some good thing here is you have stood by me for the most part the last three years. That's a good thing. Secondly, he says, and I got a little gift for you. I'm going to give you a whole kingdom. Oh, is that all? You know what? Has anybody ever given you a kingdom? If you know Christ, they have. Because he gives a kingdom to everybody who knows him. And you will rule and reign with Christ forever and ever in his kingdom. And you know what? He says, as my father has granted me a kingdom, and believe me, the father is not stingy. He's not saying, well, Jesus, here's a little piece of desert land. You know, here's some, some mosquito-infested swampland. You just take that. You can share it among your little scruffy little crowd. No. The Father gives Jesus the best kingdom that could possibly have. And then Jesus says, and I give it to you. Third, he says, I will have you dine at my table and others will serve you. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just going to be amazing when we're in heaven with Christ and and, and heaven is often pictured this way. Have you noticed this? If you go through the Gospels, the kingdom of heaven is almost always portrayed as eating, dining. That's why churches have potlucks. We're getting ready. That's why there's got to be food. Because we're getting ready for the kingdom. And the whole Jesus just pictures everybody sitting down and being served. I guess by angels. I don't know. Or maybe he'll let everybody sit down and he'll serve us all. I don't know. But you're going to be his honored guest. And four, he says, in my kingdom, you will sit on thrones as kings. And you want power? You want authority? You want to have dominion? Okay, I'll give you that. That is so incredible. I I love the statement that Jesus makes at the church of Laodicea, which was really kind of a flaky church. He does still say in Revelation 3.21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Think about that, sitting down with Jesus on his throne. Finally, And fifthly, Jesus says, in my kingdom, you will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, listen, in the kingdom, I just want you to know, it's not going to just be some perfunctory title I give you. Yeah, you're a king and sit here in this chair and there you go. You're actually going to be ruling. That's going to be reigning. You're going to be making decisions with me in my kingdom. 
But in the meantime, before you die, before I establish my kingdom, I want you to act like the younger. I want you to act like the slave of all. And just do that, okay? I'll take care of the other stuff later. You just serve others now. Be a servant leader. Do you lust for power? Do you lust for position? Do you lust for prominence and recognition? Then you need to repent of that sin. You need to rejoice in the advancement of others. You need to serve others and let God exalt you in due time. Now, there's the lion. Well, let's run into the bear. Avoid selfish boasting. Look at verse 31. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He uses Peter's old name, Simon. And what you can't see in the English here when he says Satan has demanded permission to sift you, that you there, that second person pronoun is in the plural. Satan was demanding permission to sift all of them. He's behind the scenes saying, Jesus, I beg you, man, let me at him. Let me at him. The phrase sift you like we describes the process of separating chaff from the grain. When wheat was harvested first the, with the sickle, they would cut the, the stalks off closer to the ground. They would bundle them up, then take them, and then crush the heads off of the stalks and then throw away the stalks. But still, there would be the grain and all the little holes and the stickery things that are all around the grain. So how do you get those off? Well, the women usually would go up on a hill. The grain would be brought up on the hill where it was kind of windy. They would then get these shallow bowls, dip it into the grain, and they would swish it around and they'd throw it up in the air and the grain would pop up and being heavier, it'd come straight down, but the wind would blow the chaff away. So after doing this for a little while, pretty soon you'd only have grain. This is what Satan wants. Just let me at them. Let me swish them around. Let me throw them up and down. Let me bring them down. And what's really amazing here is the Greek tense tells us that Jesus gave him permission. He gave him permission. Now, what's important to notice here is, again, the sovereignty of God in this situation. Notice that Satan is not a free agent. Satan cannot do what he wants. Satan is on God's very short lease and Christ is holding the end of that leash. And Satan, unlike uh, Hollywood portrays him, is not all-powerful. He's not God's evil opposite twin. He is a finite creature infinitely below God. And he can do nothing unless God permits it and everything he does do god has permitted it now think with me for a second what if you're a believer you're a child of god you've placed your faith in christ you've been born again you're on your way to heaven would god ever you know allow satan to get you to sick satan on you you might think at first thought, well, no, 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 I, I'm a child of God. I've been adopted into the family of God. I have the Holy Spirit in me. I have Christ in me. I have, you know, I, 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 why would God do that? He's a perfect father. He would, surely would never let that evil fiend to tempt me. Think again. Think again. You might wonder, well, why, why would God do that? For your good. Because you need it. You know, we might say, well, you know, would you ever let some rabid Rottweiler attack your child? It's like, no. Well, Satan's a lot worse than a rabid Rottweiler. And God yet uses him sometimes, gives him permission to go after us. And I'm telling you, this is worthy of an entire sermon, and I'm going to preach an entire sermon on this one day, but not today. But let me just bring some things to your remembrance. You remember Job? Job chapter 1 and 2. Here he is. He's rich. He's worshiping God. He's doing, you know, offering sacrifice for his children. He is an upright man. 
fearing God, blameless, turning away from evil. That's God's description of him. And then comes that day when the sons of God, angels, come to present themselves before before the Lord because they're accountable to the Lord. And Satan is among them because he's accountable to the Lord too. And then God says to Satan, behold, have you considered my servant Job? God points Job out to Satan. And Satan says, well, come on. You know the only reason that he worships you is because you pay him. He's mercenary. I mean, you could give any wicked person that much stuff and they would worship you. That's all that's happening here. So what does God say? Sick him. And Job has everything taken away from him. All his huge mass of possessions and even his children. Even his children. Satan takes even his children away from him. And then... The angels are coming before the Lord to give an account again. And God sees Satan and says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's a, he's a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, which is kind of a divine way of saying, ninner, ninner. <laughs> because he still worshiped me after you took everything away from him. And then Satan says, oh, <laughs> Well, of course, of course, but you're still paying him with health. I mean, we can all get by without things, but you touch a man and his health, he will curse you to your face. And God says, okay, sick him. Job then is afflicted with terrible boils. It seems that he's out in the city dump sitting in the ashes of the dump and he's scraping these boils that are oozing and scabby with a piece of broken pottery. The only thing he has is a foolish wife who tells him to curse God and die and friends which falsely accuse him of committing sins and bringing these trials upon himself for weeks, it seems. They're just... They keep attacking him and, oh, you did this. And there's all these dialogues. We don't know how long they go on, but it seems to indicate it was a long time. Well, God finally appears, humbles Job a little bit, restores all his fortune. Job still worships God after he loses his health. He still worships God after he gets his fortune back. God gives him greater fortune than before, more daughters than before, restores everything greater than before. Now think about that. Think about that. Um, when you think about Job, I mean, do you think anybody has ever been encouraged by the book of Job? Maybe in suffering. Maybe millions, millions of people. Why? Because God gave permission to Satan to go after him so that you and I could be blessed. You go, but he was an upright man. He he was fearing God. He was blameless. He, He turned away from evil. So why would God do that to him? Because he was an upright man, fearing God, blameless, and turning away from evil. That's why it happened to him. Because God knew that Job would do the right thing and he let Satan go after him so that Job could prove to Satan and to us and everybody who's ever read the book that God is worthy to be worshipped whether everything's great, whether you lose all, whether you lose all your health or whether everything's restored again. It's, it's, it's almost like God knows best. And so if God does allow trial in your life, if he does allow Satan to get you, know it's going to be for your good and his glory. C.H. Spurgeon in a sermon entitled Christ's Prayer for His People said, quote, 
The more trials, the more bliss. The more sufferings, the more ecstasies. The more depression, the higher the exaltation. Thus we shall gain more of heaven by the sufferings we shall pass through here below. Let us not then, my brethren, fear to advance through our trials. They are for our good. To stop here a while is for our benefit. Why? We should not know how to converse in heaven if we had not a few trials and hardships to tell of and some tales of delivering grace to repeat with joy. An old sailor likes to have to pass through a few shipwrecks and storms, however hazardous they may have been. For if he anchors at Greenwich Hospital, he will tell there with great pleasure to his companions of his hairbreadth escapes. And there will be some old soldiers in heaven too who recount their fights and how their master delivered them and how he won the victory and kept off all their foes, end quote. Even the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations given to me, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, literally an angel of Satan, a demon. There was given to me a demon by God to torment me. Why? To keep me from exalting myself. God gave Paul so much blessing, so many revelations that Paul, he knew, would be tempted to boast and become proud because he over anybody else, was chosen to write the bulk of the New Testament. And so God says, I better keep him humble. And he gives permission to a a demon to torment him so that Paul will constantly trust in God and not become proud, which is a good thing, which is a good thing. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Stop there. Notice Satan asked for permission from God. And notice he says, once you have turned again, which implies what? He's going to deny the Lord. Satan's going to get the permission. He's going to sift him like wheat. And he's going to deny the Lord. All the disciples are going to deny the Lord. They're all going to scatter and run away. In Jesus' greatest hour of need. But Peter, being a little bit proud, being the boastful one, the one who needed the most humbling, said, look at verse 33, but he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. The other gospel accounts said they all said the same thing. And here we see our second main sin to avoid, the sin of boasting. If you look up the word boasting in your Bible, you will see that they all fall into three different categories of boasting. Two categories are good. One category is bad. The first kind of good boasting is to boast in your weaknesses. To boast in your weaknesses. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11.30. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. He goes on to say in chapter 12 verse 5. On behalf of such a man speaking of himself, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. And then he goes on to say in verse 9. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So boast about your weakness. Boast about your failure. Boast about your inability to do anything for the glory of God apart from the grace of God. Boast that Christ saved you and you didn't save yourself. Boast in those things. I mean, don't boast that, listen, I sinned more than you. No, I did. I did this many sins. Oh yeah, but I did that many. And to this degree. I mean, we're not talking about that. But just boast about your weakness. Why? Because what that does is it shifts the attention away from you onto Christ, who is your strength. So that if somebody comes to you and says, oh, Pastor Hughes, good sermon. I say, well, praise God, not me. The second kind of good boasting is to boast in the Lord. 
In 1 Corinthians one thirty one and 2 Corinthians 10.17, Paul summarizes Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Jeremiah actually says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands me. And then he goes on to explain some of his character. You want to boast? Boast in the Lord. God did this. God did that. God did this other thing. Look at what the Lord is doing. Man, boast all you want like that. That's great. But there is an evil and third kind of boasting. And that's to boast in yourself. Boast in your accomplishments. Boast in your achievements. Boast in your skills. Boast in your suffering. Boast in your hard work ethic. Boast in whatever. Anytime you're trying to get from other people something because of things you said, you're boasting or comparing or contrasting, they go, oh, you, you, you. That's evil boasting. I know I have done this a lot of times. I, you know, my brothers and I do this just for fun. You know, we'll be sitting around, we'll both have the same exact tape measure, and we're, we're working on some project, and say, like, well, yeah, it's too bad about your tape measure. Well, wh- wh- what are you talking about? This is like a 25-foot power lock. Well, I know. But look at it, it's all beat up. No, it's experienced. <laughs> My tape measure has more experience than your identical one. No, no, it's not more experience, it's more worn out. <laughs> Boasting boasting. Peter said, Lord, with you, I am ready to go to both prison and death. Man, I'm with you. I'm going to stand by you. I'll go to prison with you. I'll die with you. He did not say, Lord, if you give me strength, I'll stick by your side. Lord, if you grant me the grace, I will die with you. He said, I am ready. I am ready. Look at verse 34. Jesus comes back right after that. I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Ow. Ow. And that was a fact. And so Jesus gave Satan permission and said, you know, Peter's going to be the leader of the 12. We need some humbling. So go ahead and get him. You can get the rest too. Let me ask you, have you ever boasted of your achievements? Boasted in your marriage? Boasted in your parenting? Boasted in your work ethic? Boasted in your taste and fashion? Boasted in your cooking ability? Maybe have some sort of talent, a, a skill, or anything else? It's evil. It's evil. And there's really only two answers to all those questions. The right answer is, yes, I have. And you know what? God, he loves you. And he's going to make sure that you learn not to be that way a little bit more every year. You know, as you strut out of your limo, you got your Armani suit on. You're walking and if people are looking as your diamonds are flashing, your hairdo is doing its thing. And you're looking around and you're walking and you just on your face right in front of the cameras. Ah! It's like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress where he's traveling to the, you know, the celestial city and he's on the straight and narrow way. And, and uh, he looks up ahead and there's faithful. He thinks, oh, another pilgrim along the way. I think I'll uh, run by him. You know, so he knows I'm very extra zealous to get to the celestial city. And so he kind of gets a little closer and then starts jogging by him. And then he thinks, oh, yeah, he's probably really impressed. I mean, he's watching me run. And he looks over his shoulder to see if Faithful's looking, trips and falls in his face. God likes to do that. We need that. We need that. You know, I'm preaching some great sermon, I think. And all of a sudden I say something that's really dumb. Why did I say that? Everybody laughs. And I was like, okay, I'll get back to my normal self. <laughs> Everybody needs to be humbled so that they don't boast, so that they aren't proud. Because boasting often begets boasting. Yeah, I can lift 100 pounds. Oh, that's pretty good. 
You know, I've lifted 100 pounds, there's another one, with one arm. Really? A third person says, that is amazing. You know, but I just want you to know, I've lifted 100 pounds with my pinky. Now, I'm not trying to boast or anything, and it was when I was younger, but I did it with my pinky. Whoa, you are amazing. And so we can find ourselves in a dueling match, each one pointing a bigger boasting gun than the other person. Somebody pulls out their Derringer, and we pull out our six-shooter, and then it's the 44 Magnum, then it's the bazooka, trying to out-sin each other before God. And Paul says very clearly, all such boasting is evil. So that's convicting. So let's flee from the bear, get bit by the snake. Avoid denying the Lord. We are purposely, again, skipping verses 35 to 53. and just summarize what happens. They're in the upper room. Jesus says, you need to take some provisions with you because I'm going to be leaving. They seem to be just totally like, you know, so. Um, they then go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus prays and prays and prays and prays. So the mob has a chance to get there. The mob gets there. He is betrayed by Judas with a kiss and they arrest him. And then we read this in Luke 22, verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. Peter had just lopped off Malchus's ear. Now, Malchus was the, the slave or servant of the high priest. And when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter, in boldness, just like he said pulls out the sword, and he tries to decapitate Malchus, who, wanting to preserve his head, tilts his head and shears off his ear. Jesus then says, put the sword away, picks up the ear and uses divine super glue and puts it back on. And I, you know, it just must have been interesting to have all that blood running down your face going, well, where, where's the alley? I don't know. It feels fine. No, it's, I don't know where the, who's this came from. Anyways, he, he heals him back. He's all back. And then Jesus, at that moment, gives himself into the hands of these evil men who, of course, Judas is possessed by Satan and the demons are rallying to destroy the king of kings. It's at this point that the other gospels tell us that Luke, or not Luke, but uh, Zechariah 13 verse 7 is fulfilled, which says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So uh, Jesus quotes that in Matthew chapter 26 verse 31, and this is when it happens. They all scatter. All of them who said, I will never leave you. I will die for you. I'll go to prison with you. The mob comes. They all run like scared children. They all hide. Every one of them. In Jesus' greatest hour of need, he is deserted by his closest friends. Yes, even James and John, the hulking fishermen, and Peter... It might be that Peter stood there. We don't know whether he ran and came back or whether he was just kind of shocked because Jesus said, put away your sword. And he did and thought, well, what do I do now? And then they just arrested Jesus. And then Peter sees Jesus being roughhoused and taken away and bound. And they're slapping him and spitting on him and mocking at him and jeering him. And he's seeing this as Jesus being taken away. And he's probably just kind of like, what happened? And so our text says that he, he follows at a distance and they're all happy that they finally have Jesus and they have him away from the crowd so he doesn't start a riot and it's at night and they're going to be able to do to Jesus what they want. And so Peter is following behind. We know from the other gospels that the high priest had a huge house with a huge inner court that could be entered through a gate and Peter got admittance through that gate. You know, we don't know if they're high, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm just here to yeah, observe things. Um, we don't know what he did, but he got in. And then if we look at our text in verse 55 of Luke 22, after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, looked intently at him and said, 
this man was with him too. Now, we don't know this from Luke's account, but we can go to the other account and we discover, you know who this little servant girl was? It just happened to be the cousin of Malchus. And when she said, this man was with him too, in kind of an accusatory voice, Peter thought, oh no, I did try to cut off his ear, his head, and got his ear. And, and so he says, I don't know the man. First denial. 50, verse 57, but he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist saying, certainly this man also was with him for he too was a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about immediately while he was still speaking a rooster crowed. And you need to remember that this is happening all night, you know, maybe from 11, uh, 12 o'clock at night, all the way through Jesus being tried and, and beaten and harassed. And, and we don't know if this is all within sight of Peter or Jesus is in a room in the high priest's house or he's on a balcony. We don't know what's going on. We know in a moment Jesus is going to be able to see Peter. So they, we don't know if they're bringing him out or all this is happening and Peter's watching this or what. The scriptures are not clear. But Jesus has been abused and abused and abused all this time. Peter's in the the, the courtyard. He's huddled around a fire. Um, it's cold that night, and it's always coldest right before the dawn. And in the, the firelight, as it's flickering on his face, the servant girl says, Hey, you're one of them too. You know, Peter wasn't a good blend-in guy. He was always next to Jesus, always speaking. And so during this time, when Jesus is up on the Temple Mount and all these three million Jews are in Jerusalem, you know, probably a million people saw Peter with Jesus because Jesus attracted so many people and was in the most congested place, the Temple Mount. And so Peter, fearing for his life, fearing for his safety, thinking of himself, not wanting to be arrested, not wanting to be tried, denies the Lord, denies the Lord, and denies the Lord. And then the rooster crows. Then the rooster crows. And that's when everything happens. Look at verses 61 and 62. Just as the rooster crows, the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had told him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. That there was this moment of reckoning that that Jesus is either within sight the whole time or they just brought him out or they opened a window or something. But Peter, all of a sudden, right when the rooster crowed, Jesus turned his head from wherever he was and looked straight into Peter's eyes and it just happened. Peter realized, you were right. I boasted and I have denied you three times. And he just broke and wept bitterly. Peter was guilty. Peter was tired. Peter was shamed. Peter was humiliated. And so he just bolted and wept bitterly. And you know, when we think of Peter, we feel sorry for him. You know why we feel sorry for him? Because we do the same thing. And we've denied him a lot more than three times. How many times when you had an opportunity to say something for Christ, did you not say it and deny the Lord? How many times when you could have said, oh, I'm a Christian, but you knew you were around a bunch of Christ haters, you you didn't say anything because you didn't want to be rejected. Or you didn't want to, at lunchtime, mention when everybody was saying what they were going to do this weekend, yeah, I'm going to go to the church picnic and church on Sunday. Because you didn't want them to think that you were some sort of religious freak. And you deny the Lord. We have denied the Lord many times, just like Peter. And we look at Peter and we feel for him because we feel for our own selves because it's so easy to look out for yourself and not stand up for Christ. But you know what was neat is? Is Peter needed this face plant. He needed to be sifted like wheat. And to deny the Lord after his strong boasting because that's what God used to break his hard heart 
and to subdue his pride so that Peter could become what God needed him to be as a leader of the twelve. Not only this, but just when Peter's probably trying to get, you know, warmed up and Jesus, of course, appears after his resurrection, it's, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you even like me a lot? And that made him malleable so that he could then be used in the Lord's service. And we see him in Acts, whole different guy, bold, humble, willing to suffer. He's a different guy. And where we really see him shine is in First and Second Peter, the books that he wrote. He was even so bold to pin this in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. You can imagine when he wrote that, it was like he probably paused even denying the master like I did. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. We need to be like Peter and grieve over our own denial of the Lord when the times we should have said something and we didn't. We need to look in the scripture and see Jesus looking at me saying, have you denied me again? But we also need to be encouraged because not only did Peter hear from the Lord, but when you have turned, implying that he would deny him, he talked about, you will strengthen your brothers. Why? Because I have prayed for you. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in the garden right before he was arrested? His high priestly prayer in John 17, where he prayed for his disciples and prayed for all those who would eventually believe in him. All who would eventually believe in him, he prayed for them. That means he prayed for you if you know Christ as your savior. He is your advocate. He is your mediator. He died for your sins, even for your denials, even for three times, even for 50 times, even for a thousand times. He has given you his Holy Spirit. He has given you his word. He has given you the fellowship of the saints. His grace is sufficient for you. Confess your sins, confess your denial and trust in the Lord and he will make you strong again. He will make you one of those people who can stand up for him if you just let him, if you step out in faith. But some of you may still need a few face plants to get there. So avoid lusting for power and position. But as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Notice, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. That's what Peter wrote. Why? Because he was anxious and he denied the Lord because he was proud and boastful. And he learned the lesson and now he writes here out of his own experience and his own transformation, giving us inspired words to obey. Avoid boasting in yourself. Avoid denying the Lord. Speak for him. As Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful to have this text to look at and we see these sins which are so prevalent in all of our lives. Father, we are all those who lust, all those who boast and all those who deny. And though some of us are better than others, all of us are guilty. And Father, we are thankful for Jesus and his death on the cross so that we can be forgiven of those sins. We're thankful for all sufficient grace. 
And we're thankful, Father, that even though we may fail, you raise us up. For you have prayed for us all that we might rise again, that we might strengthen one another, that we might walk before you in holiness. Father, help us to be like Jesus, not deny him, not boast, not lust for power or position, that you might receive all the glory and honor and praise. We ask this in your name. Amen.